Welcome to Crosswords, the podcast about practical Christianity. What does it look like to walk in Jesus' footsteps? How do I live in a culture hostile to godliness? These are questions that we'll answer on each podcast as we get our heart and mind on Jesus. All scriptures quoted are from the New International Version. You can follow me on Twitter at Kingdom underscore Saint. Walk with the Lord today and be a blessing. My wife and I will be celebrating our 21st anniversary this month, December 2020. I love anniversaries. I love celebrating our anniversary. It reminds me of the promise I made when I sealed my covenant with my wife. I remember how faithful she has been, how much she loves me. 21 years of patience. I remember what kind of a husband I have been and how much I have failed, as well as how much I have supported her, loved her, and given myself for her. I know I'm not perfect. That is the grace of God that sustained me and enables me to continue to desire to grow and be that better husband, lover, father, and friend. I'm thankful God gives me new days to improve. Imagine if I could celebrate every week. Isn't it worthwhile to celebrate this every week? Would it be too much to do that? Well, I don't think God thinks so, especially when it comes to remembering our anniversary, or better yet, what Jesus did for us, who he is for us. This is the great significance of our assembling here every single week. We take the Lord's Supper every single week. What a holiday to remember the con- the consistent love God has for his covenant people and also for the whole world. And, you know, talking about God's character, God's character is unwavering. And today we're going to focus on that consistent love God has for us. His character is unwavering. And this is something difficult for us to take in. As humans, we are constantly evolving in our thinking, in our maturity. Uh, It's hard for us to grasp a being that is full, that's complete, in ways that we cannot even imagine. All you have to do is kind of look back at how much you've grown and changed in the last 10 years, and I hope you can appreciate that you have evolved as a person, that you have gotten better, that you have learned something, that you have learned to interact better. And if that's not true, then you really need to take a look at how you are doing things. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, the passage that we've been examining concerning God's character, says the Lord, and when we see the Lord in all caps here, remember, it's the personal name of God, Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is what God revealed to Moses at this point in the timeline of history as they were about to seal a covenant, his compassionate and gracious nature, which we shall explore more in depth as this series continues. Today I'm going to elaborate on the consistency, like I said before, of God's loving character to set up that foundation for the study of God's character. As I said before, Exodus 34, 6-7 is referenced more than 27 times throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Most of the times it is referenced 
in view of God's forgiveness and loving kindness by the very people who are returning to God because of this open invitation that he has given them to forgive them, to repent, to change their ways, to turn to him, that he is trustworthy, he is faithful. And these are the people who have found out one way or another that they got God all wrong and can finally see how he really is trustworthy. He is dependable. He is consistent in his love, like the prodigal son realizes about his father when he wakes up, when he sobers up. As I shared with you before, verse 6, uh, this verse, Exodus 34, 6, is a rhyming poem in the Hebrew, and therein we see the five attributes that God uses to describe himself. Number one, compassionate. Number two, gracious. Number three, slow to anger. Number four, overflowing with loyal love. Number five, overflowing with faithfulness. However, God also adds in verse 7, Exodus 34, 7, he continues by saying, maintaining love to thousands, and I put in parentheses, of generations, because that's understood there, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. That word generation doesn't really appear in the original text. It's something that's understood by context, so it's kind of added in the English translations. Um, so let's look at that first word that we started verse 7 with, maintaining love to thousands, of course, to thousands of generations. This presents the consistency of God's love. He maintains it, despite our character flaws. I mean, we're the ones in this uh, covenant that are faulty. We're the ones that are undependable. Yet God says that he maintains his love. It's unwavering. God's unwavering compassion and loyalty to us, despite our wavering loyalty, is something we can count on. God maintains his love when you don't, like a good parent. You know, when we're going through our teenage years, <laughs> we're very fickle. But our parents, if they're good parents, if they're mature parents, they maintain their love. That consistency that they show us, it, it's really what maintains our relationship. God says he maintains his faithfulness when you don't, when you get distracted. He maintains his grace even when you're not thinking about it. We can also see the tension in God's character. He maintains his love, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. In our last lesson, we explored that tension that's within the character, as we see here in verses 6 and 7. Uh, we're used to judging people as gracious or stern, forgiving or exacting. We kind of put them on polar opposites, yet we have trouble expressing balance in this area. As a marriage counselor myself, I use various tools to chart someone's capacity for forgiveness, for judgment, and I have seldom seen a balanced character. Um, some people hold grudges. Some people get offended easily. He gets too grumpy, I get told. Oh, she's too soft. He's a doormat, etc., etc. It's tough for us to learn. Uh, and this betrays our lack of intimacy with God, our lack of really knowing Him and trusting Him because We've come to know him. You know, don't feel too bad. Many people in the Bible, some beloved by God, have also had a lot of trouble with this. So we're in good company. We have to remember what Jesus said in John 
17.3, the very definition of eternal life is this, that they know you, the only true God, the Yahweh, full of compassion and grace, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So our appreciation of eternal life, our knowledge of eternal life, really hangs on knowing God. And God tips the scale of this tension that we see within him towards love, towards compassion. Some of us sometimes get unbalanced and the scales tip in favor of us showing anger or resentment or bitterness, but that's not God's character. You know, he has plenty of excuses to tip the scales toward that, but he doesn't. He's a God full of compassion, so he tips the scales constantly to show us love and compassion, especially to his covenant people, setting a tone for his people to learn to show consistent love to one another and to the object of our love and faith, the Lord God. So let's talk today about why God said these words to Moses. Why reveal these things when Moses asks him to show him his glory? Because that's the whole context of the passage here. When God expresses these traits concerning himself, it's within the context of Moses asking him to reveal his glory. So to understand this dynamic, we have to examine what brings God and Moses to this point in the conversation. So let's do a little brief history here uh, of the book of Exodus. In chapter 1 through 10, we know Israel is in Egypt. They're oppressed. They're slaves. God wants them to know him. He brings about Moses as this kind of uh, savior for Israel. Um, and so God does a lot of things amongst them. He shows them that he's more powerful than the Egyptians' gods and that he favors them, his covenant people. He does this, <coughs> excuse me, um, through the ten plagues, most of them affecting the Egyptians but not affecting the Israelites. He eventually brings them out, and he brings them out through waters. He parts the Red Sea in this amazing show of power where the people of Israel, who don't even have horses or chariots, they pass through the water on dry ground. Yet when the Egyptian army tries to do it, they get caught in the waves and they all drown. In chapters 15 through 17, we see here that they're going out of Egypt. They cross the desert until they reach Sinai. And along the way, there's a lot of grumbling. You know, even though they saw that God is able to save them, uh, there's still a lot of grumbling, a lot of complaining. And yet, amongst all that, God provides manna. He provides quail. He provides water. He's showing that he is their sustenance. But Amidst all this, they appear not to trust God, despite the favors that he clearly shows them uh, since they were in Egypt. In two months' time, their lives have been turned around. Yet, there's a lot of grumbling in the camp. Finally, by chapter 18, they are at the foot of Mount Sinai. And you know, what? what's the lesson for us as we read all these events. I mean, the scriptures teach us that all the events in the Old Testament have been recorded for our benefit, really to show us and generations to come and the generations before us that God indeed is trustworthy and unwavering in his loyalty. So in chapter 18, they're there. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. And we get to chapter 19. 
chapter 19 begins a summary. It begins sort of like a new literary unit in the book of Exodus. Uh, it starts out with a date. Uh, they're there at Mount Sinai. There's a little summary there. They've been, and they're going to be in this desert here for a while now. They're going to be camped down here for a long time, all the way until Numbers. So from here on out till the end of Exodus, many significant things happen between God and his people. Not only do they receive the Ten Commandments, uh, they also receive the instructions for the tabernacle, how to assemble the tabernacle, and pretty much the details of the covenant that they're entering with God. So on Sinai, at this very holy place, God wants to show them his loyalty. He wants to show them that he is reliable, that he is faithful. He is trying to help them reason to keep his covenant. I mean, he's already showed them his great power, how much attention he gives them. Uh, and, and all this, of course, to prove that he has been faithful all along to the promise that he made Abraham. This shows God's faithfulness. He has kept his promise to all those generations from Noah to Abraham, and now through Moses to the Israelite people. A main prelude and summary of the covenant is the Ten Commandments. And following the Ten Commandments, we got some 40-plus commandments that follow that one all the way through Leviticus. So, at the end of chapter 24, after God appears to the people and to Moses, and the people witness the visible signs of God's power and glory, on the mountain that the Hebrew author talks about, right? The mountain burning with fire. Uh, the hear the voice of God, the trumpet blast. It was a terrifying sight. Moses says, I am trembling with fear. So after all that, you know, the people said, oh, we can't listen to God's voice. This is too much. Moses, you need to be our, our representative. So Moses kind of becomes the mediator, and that's what he was all along, mediating between God and his people. Because he is faithful. You know, he... He, he, his heart is in the right place. He wants to do the right thing. Uh, the people were too fickle. So Moses goes up the mountain now to seal the deal of this new covenant. He, he, he wants to respond to God. Yes, we want to be your covenant people. And at this point, the glory of God rests on Mount Sinai. The scripture says for six days, <coughs> the people are able to appreciate the, the, the clouds, the thunder, the fire that is appreciated at the top of Mount Sinai. They're, they know they're not dealing with an imaginary God here. They know they're not dealing with, with some dumb idol. This is the God, Yahweh, that delivered them from Egypt. And so on the seventh day, God calls out Moses. Moses was there, remember, 40 days, 40 nights, while the people are witnessing all these things. And so we come here to Exodus 24, verse 15 through 18, which says, when Moses went up, on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, throughout this, this time, there are seven divine speeches that God makes. And among those that take place from chapter 25 all the way through 31, God reveals the blueprints for the tabernacle. So he's giving them all the instructions. 
But right in the middle, something happens. Right in the middle of this, there's a huge step backward. Uh, Moses is unaware of this. God, God's aware, though. But Moses doesn't know what's happening. He's on the mountain with God. But something else is happening in the encampment below. And we read about that in Exodus chapter 34. I mean, 32 through 34, which is the golden calf episode. So uh, uh, if you uh, read Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6, I'm just going to read verse 5 and 6. We see that things start to go terribly wrong. People are complaining. Why is Moses going away? It's taking too long. Uh, let us build a calf. Let us build a golden calf. And, you know, Aaron saw what the people, they, they kind of overruled Aaron. Remember, Aaron is supposed to be Moses' uh, mouthpiece here. Yet the people are following their hearts. they like, you know what? We don't really understand what's going on. This is, this is something different. This is not what we're used to. Let's do something we're familiar with. And so that's uh, the spirit in which this golden calf is built. And in verses 5 through 6, it reads, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Now, understand here, the Lord is Yahweh, right? He's, he's uh, dedicating this to Yahweh. So it's not another God that they are trying to betray here. They're not that dumb. <laughs> so, you know, they, they realize, oh, yes, God, you know, but, but let's put God in a context that we can understand. Verse 6 then says, So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So <laughs> this phrase here, this word uh, or, or phrase, indulge in revelry, some versions would say uh, the people got up to play. This Hebrew word really, it, it, it's the context of it involves physical touching, so it has some sexual overtones and connotations. They were involved in, in just carnal and sensual things. That's what they knew how to do. You know, let's let's party, right? Let's let's get drunk uh, and let's uh, you know get involved in, in some horseplay here or some or some bad stuff. You know, they were going back to what they knew. This is what they knew, perhaps, from tradition, from culture. You know, they were in uh, oppressed in Egypt for, for quite a few hundred years. So this shows that they were in no mood to wait on this Yahweh. After all, God had them wait a little longer than a month, 40 days, 40 nights. Uh, and they had heard his voice. They saw the fire. I mean, yeah, they were scared, but they also didn't know what to do. Uh, they had witnessed marvelous things, but they didn't quite know what to make of it. Uh, it seemed like they wanted a predictable God, a, a pre-packaged God that could be packaged and understood in a way they could wrap their brains around it, one they could mold in their own image. So they're not building a calf to replace Yahweh. You know, they're actually fashioning a calf in their image of God and what they wanted to understand God was. They had just heard God say not to make an image of him, you know, because they did hear the Ten Commandments. They did hear God voice them out. And he said, don't make an image of him and certainly not of animals. So right away, I mean, they stepped all over that commandment in Exodus 20, verse through uh, 2 through 7, where he says, you should not 
make uh, verse 4 specifically, you should not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So you see, he repeats here what he had repeated, or what he's going to repeat later when Moses says to show him his glory, uh, Exodus 34, 7. You know, that fact that, hey, he maintains his love to thousands of generations who want to keep his commands. But if you're going to trample over his image, if you're going to not choose him and choose other things in your understanding, in your limited and puny understanding of things, then you know what? You're going to miss out. Uh, you're going to receive punishment uh, because you're not going to know God's love. He also adds in verse 7, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord would not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And this verse 7 in the Hebrew is of particular interest here, pertaining to the golden calf. <coughs> He's saying, You shall not carry the name of the Lord into the empty thing. That's the transliterated uh, from Hebrew to English. You shall not carry, you shall not lay the name of the Lord into the empty thing, into the deception, into the falsehood, the hollow. So we shall not take this holy name of God, the name, the compassionate Yahweh, and lay it on something empty, something deceiving, something false which is precisely what they were doing. They were taking the name of God, right? That's what we read in verse, uh, in, in uh, chapter 32, verses 1 through 6, how they took God's name and declared it and put it on and laid it on this empty thing, this falsehood. Uh, and God doesn't want us to do that. You know, we do that more than we think of. Uh, he doesn't want us to appropriate his name, his character, into anything that you can perceive with your senses. Because God is way above our understanding. We're not to make guesses at what or who he is. We're not to fashion God into our own image, put God in our own box, which is what happens uh, when we see all these denominations. You know, why are there so many denominations? Because people want to understand God in a particular way, and so they say, oh, well, I'm understanding God this way. It's not the way you understand it, so I'm going to follow God my own way. And what they end up doing is following God their own way. They're not, they don't follow God, which is what idolatry really is, just like these people were doing it. They say, okay, you know what? We don't understand this God. He's complex. He wants us to weigh, you know, I, I don't know, this is beyond me. So we're going to just take something that we know. We're going to fashion it into what we know, and we're going to lay, and that's going to be God for us. We do that so much. People have done that over and over and over. We are not to make God into our image. That's why there are so many different churches, so many false teachings, people fashioning God and his plans to accommodate their limited understanding of God. And no wonder they never get to know God's love. They never get to know God's grace because they're operating outside of that. They're not being blessed. They're being cursed by what they're doing. And so the Israelites implicated that this piece of metal, this golden calf, 
carried God's name. Now, you may have thought they were creating a new God, but that wasn't the case. They were trying to put Yahweh God into a form they could handle, that they could manipulate into something predictable and manageable. They were trying to domesticate God, just like we do. I mean, we do that to animals too, right? We want animals to behave in a certain way. We domesticate our dog. We domesticate, uh, you know, and, and while our children are small, we domesticate them too, right? We try to control them. We can't do that with God, you know? Uh, it, it's like if you're at your wedding ceremony uh, and, and you're seeing your beautiful spouse-to-be, you're holding their hands, the officiant is in the middle of the vows, and all of a sudden the officiant stops right in the middle. And he gets a message. He stops the ceremony. And he's telling you, hey, your spouse, as we speak right here, is already defiling her vows, just as you're about to get married. That's what was going on here, right in the middle, when God and Moses are having that conversation, sealing the deal up in Mount Sinai. The people have already turned away. How disappointed, how hurt God must have felt through all this. But you know what? God maintains his love, even when we can't, even when we're not able to. God maintains his love. After all they had seen, after all they had heard, that was way beyond their comprehension. I mean, something that put fear into their hearts and mind. God had invited them to meet him personally on the mountain to seal his covenant face to face. They hear the Ten Commandments. It was such an intense experience, but too intense for them. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. They wanted Moses to be their representative and seal this pact. But they were waiting too long now. How long? Forty days. What's going on? What, what's up with this Moses? Did he get lost? I mean, what's going on here? This covenant with this Yahweh is unmanageable, <laughs> they thought. We want something manageable. We don't know how to handle this God. Let's make him in our own image. You know, we're familiar with idols. We, don't, we know what to do with them. We can make one up and, and party and celebrate and dedicate feasts to him. Party our way, you know, celebrate our way, sensually, you know, giving ourselves to the flesh. They probably borrowed a lot of that from the Egyptian culture and ideas they were familiar with because of all the time they were in Egypt. And they just couldn't figure out Yahweh, so they went with what they knew. You know, the value of including this drama in the narrative here is priceless. This goes to now speaking to apologetics concerning this. Because of the transparency God is advocating. You know, God is very transparent. If, if Yahweh indeed was a God manufactured by humans and this story was being told by, uh, by people who wanted to, you know, create a religion, they would not have included all these shameful events in the narrative. They would have been very straightforward, have been very simple. Yeah, God did all these things. He saved us. He did all these things. And we followed, you know, we, we followed through. We, we obeyed. And, and that's the end of the story. But that's not real life, right? Real life always has drama. Real life always has diverging personalities. <laughs> that's how we know it's real. And so including this, this dark spot, you know, uh, here, right in the middle of God sealing the deal with Israel is of priceless value because it shows the transparency that God advocates, that he is indeed perfect 
and he's dealing with imperfect people who are constantly violating his covenant, and yet he, in light of that, will maintain his love to the thousands of people who want to be obedient. You know, God does all these things for his people. Now, if you don't want to know God, if you're not interested in knowing God, God's going to still strive to show you mercy and compassion, but there's going to be a point in time when you're going to have to choose, and your life is going to show, you know, you reap what you sow, your life is going to show whether or not God, Yahweh is your God, or you're following some kind of idol that is giving you empty returns on all that you're investing. God is always consistent. His people are inconsistent. God may have seemed very unpredictable to the Israelites, way higher, way above them, as Isaiah says. His ways are higher than our ways. But nevertheless, God is not looking for us to understand him. That's not going to happen. Even a husband and a wife, they're going to spend a lifetime trying to understand each other. That's not what marriage is about. Marriage is about serving one another, loving one another, despite what we don't understand. And so God wants us to trust him. And he's given us plenty of proof that we can depend on him. And still, in the midst of all this, our faith is inconsistent and immature. We have trouble trusting. My question to you today is, how have you tried to domesticate God in your own time? How many ways have you sidelined your faith? Have you sidelined really coming to know God and leaning on Him? And instead, you trade that experience for something that may be more familiar to you, something that's easier to do, something that's more predictable, because you haven't really taken the time. You don't think it's worthwhile to take the time to really know God, to take the time to really trust Him, to make the hard decisions in your life that indicate that you're trusting God, that you're waiting on Him. It's hard, isn't it? It was hard for the Israelites to wait on God, and it's hard for us. We want to choose the easy route. We want to choose the immediate gratification. That's why our faith wavers. We're just like these Israelites who got tired of waiting and took matters into their own hands and tried to domesticate God and created something empty, and therefore their returns were empty. Brothers and sisters, this is why we need a weekly reminder of what our Savior did for us. We need to remember His consistent love. And what better image for us to remember on a weekly basis than a Roman cross, a dual symbol, a symbol of hatred, of the extent of hatred that can come from human hearts. But at the same time, the unwavering and consistent and overflowing love and kindness and forgiveness that comes from God to those who wish to be different, to those who wish to follow reason, to those who wish to follow truth and love instead. We understand every week Jesus had to pay the ultimate price to secure our justification because we cannot be justified. We need a mediator. We're like Israel. Israel's faith was all over the place. They needed someone a little more consistent that could stand the gap between this Yahweh and their own lack of faith. And they found it in Moses. We find it today in Jesus Christ. 
because he lived a perfect life. He is the perfect mediator. Through him and by him, we know we can remain in the love, love of God without fear, without hopelessness. And that's the empty tomb, the sign, right, that Jesus left for us. For the Israelites, the sign was the glory of God on top of Mount Sinai. That fire, the clouds, the thunder, the lightning. For us today, it's the empty tomb, the sign of Jonah. He spent three days in the heart of the earth and he was raised again. No one can deny this is the reality that is with us. Just like the Israelites couldn't deny the reality of what they saw when, they, when their heads popped out of the tent every day. And they saw Mount Sinai with the thunder, with the flashing, with the fire. Well, the reality of the empty tomb is one that lives with us, a sign that he is coming back. The Israelites have to wait 40 days and nights for their mediator, Moses, to come back. And we're in that process now, waiting for a mediator to come back from the mountain, to come back from heaven. Don't get tired while you wait. Don't go looking for golden calves to follow. Don't go fashioning image, an image of God, fashioning some kind of image, trying to domesticate God your own way, which is really what? Bowing down to your own heart and indulging in play that leaves you senseless and aloof to the presence of God in your life. Don't do that. The gospel has been tested. It's proven by God's miracles, signs, and wonders. God accredited Jesus in ways that cannot be denied. In the same way God accredited himself before the Israelites, using the ten plagues on Egypt and the passing through the Red Sea. If you're ready to accept this gospel, make today the day of your salvation and join us in sealing your covenant with God by being baptized in his name. Thank you very much for listening. I hope the Lord gave you insight into conforming to Jesus with today's message. I always appreciate feedback. You can send me your thoughts, musings, and comments directly through the Anchor app. You can also contact me on Twitter at Kingdom underscore Saint. Walk with the Lord today and be a blessing.